to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm Dave Rome, your host for this week's episode, where we take a deep dive on preventing ride or race-ending mechanicals and how to deal with them when things do go wrong. For this, I rang up Mechanic to the Stars, Brad Copeland. As the personal mechanic for former cross-country mountain bike world champion, Kate Courtney, Brad is arguably one of the best-known bike mechanics in the world. And as you'll hear in this interview, he's incredibly detailed in ensuring his riders are able to consistently get to the finish line. More importantly, Brad's mountain bike focus arguably makes him a little more savvy in this space compared to race mechanics of other disciplines. World Cup cross-country racing doesn't allow bike swaps, and mechanical support is only allowed at specific tech zones. Meanwhile, events like the Cape Epic and large gravel events hold similar rules that don't even allow any outside mechanical support at all. And Brad has plenty of experience in getting riders ready for such things. Let's jump in. Welcome, Brad. Set the scene for me. Uh, where are you at the moment? Uh, I'm currently in my living room at my house in Carmel Valley, California. So we're we're home from Europe. We were there from, uh, I want to say we left the 31st of March. There's 31 days in March. It was the last day of March. Uh, and we only got back about a week and a half ago. So it was like a seven-week trip, this first one. Covered a lot of ground over there. And... Um, Unexpectedly, but uh, I'm sure we'll get to the the part of this discussion where we talk about Kate's crash and Novomesto. She actually has a very small, we'll say, broken arm. It's not like cracked through or you know displaced, but it's a small fracture in the arm. So we actually are skipping the Gang World Cup, which is the next one. Uh, normally, we would have left uh, day after tomorrow to travel back over there, but we're actually going to now. And it was just like one race, so it was kind of a lot of travel for one uh, for one event. So for us, maybe a silver lining in a sense in terms of our preparation for uh, the bigger races to come this year. But um, instead, we'll be home. We'll be home for uh, the next month, basically, and then going back over for the Leger World Cup in France in uh, the very first um, week of July. Yeah. Okay. So for now, home in California. Home in California, what are you doing to keep yourself busy over the next month? <laughs> uh, I have some friends who have a shop in town. I, hit, I kind of moonlight there a couple days a week. Um, spending time with my wife. I actually was up seeing Kate and taking care of some stuff yesterday. So still working a little bit. Um, kind of planning ahead. Our, ne- our next trip is another pretty long one, which culminates with the Olympics. So um, a lot of preparation and last minute stuff to kind of get lined up and into my hands before we leave on this trip at the end of the month to make sure everything we need to have in Tokyo is already, is already around. So, um, yeah, just kind of take care of loose ends. There's after seven weeks away, you have a lot of stuff to kind of catch up on laundry, you know, cleaning the house, doing yard work, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for taking the time to, to sit down with me. So, um, I guess, yeah, the people that aren't familiar with yourself, uh, what, what is your background exactly? You've been a mechanic for quite a while now. Yes. I, it is now a life pursuit. I think officially, I've been I've been involved in uh, cross country racing since I was 11 years old. I started racing myself, and I got started working in a bike shop in my hometown in Winston Salem, North Carolina. Uh, right around the same time, I was 12, I think, when I actually technically first began working in there as like a little shop grom and uh, figured out kind of how things work slowly but surely over the years and. Um, I was in shops my whole life and I still, like I said, I still like to work in the bike shop. I think that's where you really get to kind of 
have the full spectrum of uh, what's possible and what you might need to know about in the in the realm of bicycles. That all happens in the shop, and it's a great place to learn. It's also kind of a comfortable environment for me, having spent so much time there over the years. So, um, yeah, bike shops forever. And uh, I guess 2015, I began working at Specialized on there cross-country team or for the factory uh, racing team, um, which was not just cross-country then. I also actually even moonlighted a bit in the triathlon realm here and there as uh, we had many athletes to support and occasionally uh, have to go to those events as well. But for me, my heart was always cross-country. It's kind of always the the genre of cycling, although I have participated in all of them over the years. That's the one that I always loved the most. And so... Happy now to be on the Scott Sram mountain bike team. It's kind of one of the preeminent teams of all time. I've been with Kate Courtney as her mechanic since uh, we first started at Specialized right around the same time in 2015. And uh, when she transitioned in, after 2018 season to Scott Sram, I joined and kind of take care of her on the state side full time. And then we joined them, the rest of the team, which is based in Switzerland outside of Zurich, um, you know, for the bigger races. And we're all uh, a big happy family when that happens. Yeah, it seems uh, looking at your social media, it always seems like a good time. So you try to definitely, uh, yeah. You and Yannick seem to uh, yeah. get along pretty well as as well, which <laughs> yeah. is pretty cool to see. Another match, a match made in heaven for sure. Yeah, two two very similar personalities and approaches. So it's great to be with somebody like that when you're doing this type of work. When everybody kind of has the same approach and outlook, you know, we don't have to look after each other. We can trust one another to always be doing what's needed and doing it correctly and well and um, and having a good time in the in between. So, yeah, it's, uh, we're very fortunate to be on that team. Yeah, great. All right. Well, yeah, I guess the, the point of today's episode is to talk about uh, when things go wrong and I guess how to prevent things from going wrong. Uh, so let's dive in, which is, uh, yeah, I guess what I wanted to start with was um, – some of the juiciest stuff, which is when you're, when you're really at, when you're in the racing and uh, Kate's, I guess, done her final practice and the next thing for the bike is, is race day. Uh, what's, what's happening to that bike? What are you, what are you doing? What sort of processes are you hitting up? So it, it depends a little bit on the sort of the conditions that we're in during the week. And Nova Mesto was a good example because the conditions were pretty bad. And um, so the bike's, you know, every day we're getting quite saturated with like pretty gritty kind of sandy soil. And so for those races, we really do take things apart, kind of take the bike down, sometimes even all the way down and at least expose the bearings, flush them and clean them out, if not replace them altogether in the rear suspension. But sometimes it's all the way, Um, you know, the races are only an hour and a half, the men's an hour 45 approximately. But uh, so, you know, we have some things that we do to the bikes that may not be recommended for kind of general consumer use because our bikes only need to really be performing at their best for let's say two hours before you know maybe some of the seals that we modify to allow freedom of movement kind of are modified at their own peril and uh, allow the kind of incursion of water or dirt or whatever the case is so um, you know we do do a lot of bearing tuning and kind of displace all greases that come in bearings from the factory and usually run in just thin oil to kind of get all of the drag and all of the friction that exists from seal drag or grease, kind of thick, viscous grease drag down to a minimum. Um, I posted you know, some videos about that where you see the bottom bracket bearing spinning forever and ever and people think it's some fancy ceramic thing and it's really just a kind of tuned up stock, ceramed up bottom bracket bearing. So we, you know, we spend a lot of time and on our team, we 
have, you know, for myself, I'm just working on Kate's bikes at World Cups and Yannick uh, and Kurt are our other two mechanics. Kurt Gross is the, the third mechanic on our team. And we have only four riders and they take care of um, their riders as well. And so we can all focus really and spend, you know, all the necessary time to make sure that bike is perfect. And so, you know, usually in the week I have sort of a protocol that I'll follow where I'll put like a new chain on. You know, we race short track now on Friday. So usually on after Thursday's practice, I'll put the new chain on. Um, we always have a pretty new cassette. We run through a lot of wheel sets um, with different tire options. So they never have more than a race or two on them. So we have a lot of fresh stuff already mounted that we can just swap between. But we generally, for the like racing weekend, try to keep the same, for example, cassette and chain together just to uh, make sure that everything's playing nicely and there's no surprises. Um, so I'll do like a chain, chain ring, maybe midweek before the first race short track and um so for chain ring like you kind of want the teeth to wear the edges a little bit so they're not quite as sharp not quite as draggy um it just makes the drivetrain a little bit more smooth kind of basically generating as much free power as we can out of that thing and make sure that like we have maybe one or two good cleans of the chain to get all the factory grease out of a new chain to make sure that we have the fancy lube in there where we want it um, when it's time to go fast. So that stuff happens usually on Thursday. And uh, then, you know, we'll race. It's a short race. And usually the conditions aren't nasty in a short track, although they do sometimes uh, surprise us. But the, the courses are pretty wide open and, you know, sometimes paved or on the surface. It's not just like a muddy, nasty single track section in the woods. So typically the bikes aren't wrecked. Um, then they'll train on Saturday. Usually it's a light one. Uh, just to kind of spin the legs before Sunday's big big race. And uh, so that's when, you know, after the morning ride, we have the whole afternoon to really dig into the bike, clean it thoroughly. We want to make it look as good as it can, as well as, you know, perform as good as it can. So usually kind of like a light suspension service may happen, seal lube, that kind of thing, as long as the fork's working well. Um, like I said, bearings in the frame might be the thing that we get kind of most involved with that, uh you know, takes kind of the most disassembly and reassembly, but usually, you know, the drivetrain stuff is already taken care of before uh, Saturday, just to make sure that it's already worn in a little bit. And so then it's just like, how are the brake pads? They're probably new from the day or two ago. They probably don't need to be changed, but if it's been muddy or it's gonna be really muddy uh, in the race, we might go ahead and just make sure that we don't run into a situation where we run out of brake pad halfway through or something like that. But, you know, yeah, every day, get a lot of time with those bikes so they're usually pretty fresh every single day so rarely does the thing come all the way apart you know just for the night before a race kind of thing normally i like to leave it yannick had a good one once where he said it's like picking a scab uh if you pick it too much you can actually do more harm than good if you mess with the bike too much you can kind of cause problems that maybe you wouldn't have experienced if you just left it alone so that's kind of our our mentality so if it's working you leave it for the most part, yeah. Unless we have some reason to change something, yeah, we usually like to leave things that are working really well and not just do something for the sake of yeah saying we did it, you know. Yeah, that's an interesting one with the chain. Um, you hear of chains breaking at the start, you know, out of the start gate or or mid race. Is that really just to prevent that from happening? You sort of exactly tried tried and tested. Exactly, and um, you know, usually when those chains break, we actually had one in Nova Mesto in the men's race, Andre Freshneck broke his chain uh, in the start. He actually blew the master link apart and it was a chain that had like two and a half hours of riding on it. Basically the short track, he got a new chain before that and it worked fine actually, which is even more interesting. 
because it worked just fine. And then it was cleaned for training, rode it again Saturday, cleaned again. And then on Sunday morning, he broke in the start. Um, so he had a short ride to the tech zone and got a new chain and then was on his way. But uh, that's what we're trying to avoid, you know, and usually a weak point in a chain will expose itself pretty pretty immediately. And so, um, yeah, we like to just run them in. And then also, like I said, you know, they come with a factory kind of, it's basically like a water uh, resistant kind of coating. It's not really even a very good lubricant, um, but it's like a greasy, thick. A rust inhibitor. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, actually it works fine. Um, keeps the chain quiet for a while for like, an, you know, regular person in a bike shop. It's probably just fine to run it like that. Um, but it is quite sticky, so there's a lot of resistance built into that as well. Um, so we also try to clean those chains as thoroughly and get rid of all that kind of factory grease as possible. And then we have some fancy stuff that we use depending on the conditions that we prefer to be using as the lube. Uh, so if we start, you know, both those kind of are taken care of. If we start the process on Thursday and then have a few degreasing sessions before the Sunday race. Okay. Is that being degreased on the bike or is it off off the bike? Uh, usually on the bike, usually on the bike, just carefully. And we have some like bio, uh, kind of conscious degreasers that we use that are pretty harmless to rotors and pads as well. So if you get a little bit of spray, it's actually fine. And, you know, usually we replace the pads kind of between Friday and Saturday sometimes so that they're pretty much fresh for Sunday. Yeah. What's the the go-to chain lube at the moment? Um, it depends a little bit. Unfortunately, it's been a wet lube a lot this spring. We, we have a, a sponsor, it's Neoval, is a European company that sponsors our team. Um, and I'd rather use my favorite lube personally for racing, really in general, is a Ceramic Speed uh, UFO Drip Lube, which is a pretty amazing product. It's, you know, it's not cheap, but it's, um, it's a, you can feel it just on your own bike if you want to, how fast it feels. It lasts quite a long time. It works well in many good, you know, array of conditions. I would say thick, wet mud is kind of where it, you know, you might be better off with like a thick oil, which is what we've been using for these rainy European spring races. But um, you basically want a lube that's going to be there at the end, and that might be a little bit more important than one that's super fast for half a lap before the, you know, the conditions make it kind of irrelevant again. Um, we actually, I use once in a while too, they actually have the prepared chains, the UFO treated chain. Um, there's also some ice friction, uh, similar product from that company. It's an American company that does a, tr- you know, drivetrain treatments on cassettes, chain rings and chains. And, um, we've been experimenting with those a little bit as well here and there for bigger races, just to, you know, they advertise a lot of watts saved and also kind of maintain that throughout where some lubes maybe begin to degrade. Um, so by the end of a race, they maybe even are faster compared to other stuff than they were at the start of the race. So we're always looking for those little things. Everybody's fast and tuned up physically. So whatever we can do to kind of eke out a few you know, little watts here and there on the bike is always fun to think about and try. Yeah. For those listening, you might hear some um, cat sounds. What's your, what's your cat's name? <laughs> it's a D'Artagnan. Can you actually hear him on there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he's next to me and he's like playing with the, with the <laughs> headphone cord. And uh, yeah, he doesn't quite understand the seriousness of this moment. <laughs> so trying to push him away. All right. No, it's fine. Let's go. You have to go there. All right. We'll try to keep him out. We, we've uh, we've had complaints before about um beeping smoke alarms, but okay. uh, but cats haven't been complained about yeah. before. So okay. I think well, we're fine. Yeah. yeah. The internet is a safe place for cats. But, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, we'll exactly. we'll see if he joins us again. Uh yeah, so I guess yeah, you've you've got the bike ready for race day. 
sometimes things don't always go to plan. Uh, Nova Mesto was uh, a case of that where where Kate had a had a crash and uh, in doing so wrecked the bike. Um, I guess yeah, for a lot of people would have seen this. Uh, basically, Kate broke a brake lever, uh, which yes. which rendered the was it the rear brake. It was the rear brake lever. Re- yeah, yep. rear so brake useless. The right one. Yeah, yep. um, for you maybe the other way. And she came through into the tech zone, and you actually replaced a hydraulic brake lever in like, what was it? Two minutes. It was two. It was about two minutes. Yeah, she yeah. lost a lot more time just getting there than we did in the tech zone. So for me, that was, you know, the silver lining on the day. It was. Um, I've never done that in a race before, so you know, there was a lot of thought. I got to actually, so first of all, they saw it on the television broadcast, said that she'd bent a brake lever. You know, the carbon doesn't bend and these little bikes that we race are not really uh, made of anything but carbon. So I knew there was probably something strange going on that I needed to just see. Fortunately, um, there's a different vantage point uh, where you can kind of see the riders finish the lap before they start the next lap, after which point they enter soon uh, into the tech zone where I was located. And uh, so I got to actually see it. And I also saw that she had dropped back considerably from where she had been the previous time through. And uh, this was very early in the race, too. I think it was only on the lap, the second lap of the race. So, um, you know, she was sitting third when it happened, which was a bummer because she was in kind of good shape that day and looked like she was riding well and uh, lost the front wheel on a wet, a wet route. And when she hit, somehow bent the brake lever sort of backwards, the opposite way it normally should be pulled. And it kind of broke the... A little attachment point where there's a little plunger that pushes in, like a little arm that pushes in the master cylinder of the brake. And anyway, pulled it out of the carbon of the lever itself. So there's kind of no hope there. And I could see it kind of just sitting limp, dangling, kind of pointing straight down to the ground. And I figured that was, that it was the brake lever, you know, itself. And I was kind of, had about two minutes to think about what would be the fastest thing here. Like, so I had pre-bled brakes caliper hose and lever um but so the conditions were terrible it was really gross um with the wheel in you only have you don't have full rotation of the tool to remove a caliper they're loctited so you can't just spin the bolts easily with your finger lining up a caliper takes a long time especially when it's packed full of mud which it was um so I kind of was, you know, and if, if you work in the shop or, you know, kind of your way around um, your bike, you know, you can kind of, if you're careful, at least not to spill fluid from a filled lever with a filled hose that's bled well. You can't connect them. They usually do work oftentimes quite well. Um, and it did. And it still uh, it, it lasted the whole race. And then some for the next few days never bled it. Um, before we left <laughs> a couple of days later, we had another bike that we were uh, testing out a couple of days after that, but she still got a couple of rides on the bike afterwards and it was working, um, perfectly, which was amazing. Uh, I was very happy with that, but that was kind of the thing I was most focused on during, uh, was not to kind of like when you separate the hose, like kind of fling it where it kind of launches some fluid out and you lose, you know, a centimeter's worth of fluid in the hose. And that's when you can get a real spongy, soft feeling. And the same if you dump some out of the out of the lever itself. So I was trying, you know, it's the video of it is sped up. The person filming it kind of sped it in, uh, you know, like a time lapse mode. So he didn't see the maybe how slowly and like carefully I was making sure I didn't drop that in that moment on the ground. That was kind of the one nervous part where I was really, um, I knew if I got that wrong, they were sort of basically packing it up and walking back to the tent. So um, 
yeah, so that was kind of a, I bet I could do it faster next time, but uh, I, I was pretty pleased with uh, how it went. And I had a little help from my buddy on another team, um, Gavin Black, he's a Swiss guy who has been a long time friend of our team, which is also a Swiss team. And uh, he was nice enough to jump in and be a lending uh, helping hand during the yeah. tense moments. Yeah. What, um, and then the next lap she flatted. Uh, <laughs> so, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't over after that. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's the, what was the idea with having a whole spare pre-bled brake? Cause that, that frame you're running, isn't that like internally routed brake hoses yeah. and stuff like that's. Yeah. And kind of my first thought and the thought in general, I've only seen this done once ever in a race actually, where somebody actually stopped, got it swapped and continued racing. Um, and it was a front brake. So it's a little bit easier and more straightforward. Uh, but they did basically the same thing. So I think it was also at Nova Mesto. And they just swapped the whole thing and just kind of zip-tied it around uh, where it needed to be. And it, of course, looked terrible. And there was like a lot of hose. And it wasn't a pretty job, but it worked. Um, so I have a front and a rear one in my bag. Never even took it out of like its little pack. Like I have it in like a little foam bag so it doesn't get banged up in there. Um, like bubble wrap basically. And usually I just have them there and never even take the bubble wrap off because it's literally never happened in seven years of me doing this. And so um, <clears throat> so uh, I was not exactly expecting it, but I was, I guess, expecting it enough to, to bring this stuff with me anyway. And uh, yeah, so for the rear one, the thought would be the same, just basically kind of lash it down with zip ties or tape um, and run the whole, the whole thing end to end, which, you know, if you somehow damaged a hose, like, crash and like tangle that up or ripped it out. I've seen people rip a hose out of, not in cross country, it's more in like a kind of a Red Bull rampage type environment that I saw this, but actually like crash and pulled the hose super hard, like out of the lever body. And then, then you know, so let's say that happens and she survives it, which would be another, you know, <laughs> that's the other part of it. You have to actually be able to continue racing uh, as an athlete too. But that was my thought, you know, that's what I had it for is like, well, if I've replaced the whole brake, then it's probably easier to just do the whole thing, have it ready to go, you know, it's bled. But in the situation that we had, there's this one nut, one fastening nut that uh, kind of compresses the fittings uh, on the hose into the lever, if you know, I'm sure, I know you know um, how that works. You know, for me, that was kind of the quickest thing, was just one nut in and out, and then just bolted back on the bar. And it fortunately worked as well as I kind of drew it up in my mind, but... Um, yeah, it's a bit of a nervous kind of uh, <laughs> kind of first first uh, attempt to try that. It was a little bit uncertain, so I was glad it worked out for. Her. And and was the shift uh, attached to that brake lever, like on the? No, it wasn't actually. And, oh, interesting. Um, okay. So I run uh, the clamp separate, and now I feel a little bit justified. <laughs> justified. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it doesn't come off the shifter when you unbolt it. You know, it's like bolted on the back on the matchmaker clamp, but it still is like weighted back there. And so it kind of make that clamp cumbersome and awkward to handle. Um, but it's actually lighter, uh, the two separate, even though it seems like it wouldn't be because there's probably so many bolts and like receiving hardware for those bolts. Um, and then the bolts themselves, uh, when you have the matchmaker, there's like three bolts and the clamp itself is a little bit bulkier um so i weighed him it's only like four grams different total so it's not like i'm saving a ton of weight here but that's the original premise behind that and uh it kind of made that job a little bit easier so for sure i yeah. guess i'll keep doing it you know yeah that's cool yeah so you've got you've got these brakes in in your bag what what else is in that gear bag that you take to the tech zone like what what are you planning so, for so yeah you you kind of it's hard to plan for 
everything that could go wrong in a race. So there's probably many different approaches here. I think about what is realistic that you could actually replace in the amount of time because, you know, in a cross-country race, you have the 80% rule. So if a rider is too slow on a given lap relative to the leader's time, um, they're pulled automatically from the race anyway. So if you're spending 10 minutes, especially on the first or second lap in a race where they're, you know, everybody's more or less together, uh, it's real easy. It doesn't take too many, you know, too much time uh, for you to get 80% out of the race. So you couldn't, for example, probably like do a handlebar swap. I mean, maybe you could, but when you have to take the grips off, take the brakes off, take the shifters off, put them all back on somehow, that would be pushing it. I don't bring a handlebar and a stem to the tech zone. I figure if we broke that, we probably are out of the race anyway, because that was probably a pretty gnarly crash that resulted in that happening to begin with. But I thought about it, but it just seemed like it would take so long that you would be sort of, you know, so far off the front end of the race, if you were assuming you were there to start with, uh, that it would not even be worth that. Um, but I bring brakes, I bring a derailleur, I bring a chain cut to the length that whatever configuration we have chain ring wise uh, on the bike, um, you know, have like chains for the hardtail chains for the full suspension and all the different chain ring combinations for each bike. So I have those all ready to go no matter what we choose. Um, even if we change it last minute, that's, I have four chains in my bag. Um, because then you know if you break one then you kind of are you're going to need another another one just if you break on lap one or at the you know on the start like Andre did in this race you hope to have a second chain in case you encounter two uh such occurrences in the race although I would say Kate has never broken a chain that I can recall so knock on wood hopefully we don't but she's quite light and she seems to know how to shift a bike yeah yeah in the women's race it's less frequently seen but it's not super uncommon in the start of the men's race to see them putting out like 1200 watts off the start line and, and then shifting also. And then that's when it really goes, uh, goes sideways. Pro, pro tip on doing what the pros don't do, which is shift yeah. at 1200 watts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't do it. Uh, back off a little bit and it'll, it'll save you a lot of heartache. But um, yeah, so we haven't had that, but you know, so I'm, I'm ready with that stuff. Chains, I have a, like a shifter, so we run the SRAM axis stuff now. Um, so I have a shifter and a rear derailleur with a battery in it um, paired to one another. So if we damage the rear derailleur, I would, I feel like I could probably turn that bolt loose and tight again on the shifter faster than I could like push and hold the button, let it blink, pair the shifter to the derailleur, you know? So basically if I had a rear derailleur to swap, I would swap the shifter too. I think it's probably faster. I haven't tested that. But in my mind, I, I think that it is. So um, so I have that uh, system kind of ready to go, spare one. I have a spare seat post with a saddle on it, um, you know, like a, just marked at her height. Um, I have a pair of her shoes with a pair of spare pedals. Um, I've never seen a rider break a pedal in a race personally, but I have seen a lot of shoes break from a crash you might rip a dial or like a fastener off the side and the shoes loose so i've seen people uh take spare shoes or just like duct tape their shoes which i have, I have a big roll of duct tape um in the tech zone i should say you're sort of preparing for unconventional repairs it's kind of a it's a good test for the mechanic i think um you know usually the more straightforward work is done in the tent and it's all done when you started racing and once you're experiencing stuff in a race it's like crash-induced problems, you know, fixing things that uh, 
maybe you're kind of salvaging things a lot of times. Um, you know, flat tires are one thing. That's like kind of the most common thing you'd see. Um, so we have two wheel sets in each tech zone. In Nova Mesto, the tech zones are separated. Some races have a single tech zone where the course passes twice per lap, one on either side. So that was like an Albstadt the week before. Um, so when you have two tech zones, then you have kind of double this amount of stuff and another mechanic and the other one. And so it gets a little bit more, you know, planning wise, you just got to kind of account for all that stuff. But um, yeah, what else? I mean, I have kind of like a mini tool set of everything you'd sort of imagine, chain tools, master link pliers, Allen wrench sets, plus kind of like ones with a handle on them for like the eight millimeter for like a crank or a pedal if you really needed to, you know, using one that's kind of got some leverage and good grip to it. Um, what else do I have in there? A couple, a couple extra spare batteries, although we were like pretty like OCD about charging them. Uh, anyway, we replace the batteries after every training ride and they have like 19 and a half hours left of you know life in them. But um, I still keep those too. Um, a lot of zip ties, a knife, like di- diagonal cutters, cable cutters, like a you know, pair of like Falcos or something. And um, yeah, that's, that's probably like the, the ex- oh, some lube, some spare lube just in case, like in muddy races, there have been times when uh, we've stopped and actually hit it with some more lube um, mid-race on purpose, like a planned stop. Um, so, you know, you're also handing water, like nutrition stuff to the riders, at least for me, I'm the only one for Kate on our team who's there for her races normally. So I'm kind of doing everything. Um, but in muddy races too, I have them like hosing the bike off with water, just, you know, in a, in a water bottle, but like kind of pressure. Like, like in the tech zone, right, okay. Uh, we'll give them the bottle, you know, we'll hand them uh, up and okay. they can take it and yeah. keep squirting it throughout just to gotcha. like flush yeah. dirt and like built up mud out of the drivetrain. And so um, that's something that, you know, I have to kind of really drive home because riders often just want to pedal, pedal, pedal. But if you pedal too hard and you have too much of that stuff built up, then you can do damage and break stuff and rip derailers off bikes. And so, you know, for me, it's always faster to take a little extra time than it is to stop in a tech zone and like replace a chain or a derailleur, you know, because you didn't want to take that time to like just try to limp the bike along when it's getting coated in mud. And we've seen a lot of that. So we have a little bit of a mud, a muddy race protocol that we follow just to, you know, keep a, a bottle with water on the bike more often. She'll often want to just take a bottle and drink it and throw it to not carry any extra weight around, but we'll keep that just plain water bottle. And so she has it if she's ever experiencing, uh, you know, rough shifting or sounds where it feels like, uh, you know, maybe she's got chain, uh, like jumping kind of sensations on the chain ring when there's too much mud on it. So um, those are things I've told her to just like be conscious of, listen for, and if it's happening, don't, you know, put down too much power or shift under too much load and, try to hose it out as best you can. And if it's really bad, it might be faster to stop and take just like a quick two kind of revolutions of lube on the chain and get going again. Because when you're gonna get too much mud built up in there it can really cause problems. And especially on like a 12 speed bike now, the tolerances are so narrow that uh, there's not a lot of room for the mud to kind of <laughs> get flushed out. <laughs> it gets, gets stuck in there. Yeah, sure. Uh, and is is Kate riding with any any other, I guess, spares of her own? Like, does she have like a plug kit for tubeless or anything like that, or is it not in an XC race? Rarely. It kind of depends on the course layout. There's there have been ones where I, you know, either there's a lot at stake in the race where if she got caught in a bad place, and say for example, like a series title was kind of hanging in the balance, uh, like it was in 2019 
for the last couple of races of that series, she did have a Dynaplug um, little kind of tire plug tool and a CO2 just in case if she got caught out halfway between the tech zones and really needed to salvage what whatever she could. You know, she, she has raced and won the Cape Epic. She knows how to do, you know, kind of basic trail side um, stuff like that and, and did have to do it at, at the Cape Epic and uh, managed to do it well enough to continue and win. And um, so she knows how to do it, knows, knows the, pro- the process. And uh, I don't think she's ever actually done it in a cross-country race. You know, she's done it in the Cape Epic, which is a real cross-country race, but in a XCO format. I don't think she's ever actually, she has carried it, but never actually, to my knowledge, uh, actually stopped rather than just riding it to me. Because usually you're close enough that if you stop and take 30 seconds to try to plug your tire or a minute, or you could have just rolled on it, you know, even though it was flat, it's probably still a little bit faster just to, you know, smash it on into the tech zone and Yeah. uh, yeah, take the wheel. Yeah, sure. Just just to rewind a bit where we're talking about the spares you bring, I mean, it's, it's probably worth talking about the UCI rules here because not everyone will be familiar with them. Um, the, the rules basically just that you can't replace the frame, right? Exactly, yeah. So you, you could literally replace everything, yeah. which is ridiculous. I mean, Pretty generous, yeah. It's generous, yeah. I mean, but yeah, basically if you snap the frame in half, you're, that's it, your, your day is done. And, and now that they have a short track, there's also sort of the added rule that you have to race the same bike uh, in both events. So even if a short track course might favor a hardtail because it's simple and flat, uh, if the cross-country course dictates a full suspension bike, then you have to run a full suspension bike both days and they put a sticker on the bike to identify that it was in fact not just the same model of bike but the very same bike. And um, so that's the rule. And unlike cyclocross or road uh, where you could take another bike in the race if you crash or even in cyclocross it's dirty and you want a fresh one, uh, mountain biking has not yet adopted that rule. I have not heard that they ever intended, uh, will ever intend to adopt it. And in fact, when I first was racing, um, even on the World Cup circuit, uh, as well as the Norba series, which was a big one in the United States at that time, uh, all the riders themselves had to actually carry whatever they were going to use in the race, tools, tubes, CO2s, frame pumps, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, there used to be to no outside assistance, right? Exactly. So. Yeah. The riders are very lucky now to have <laughs> all this help, you know. Um, but yeah, a lot of people ask that question too, like why can't you just why can't you just give a new bike? And uh, that's why. So it's against the rules. But um, for us, for the mechanics, that kind of is a little sideshow that we kind of enjoy because there's a lot of thought that goes into you know into that side of it too. And a lot of people were really excited to see Kate get back up and continue. And um, I received plenty of um, Congratulations as well for facilitating that, which was nice and not something that happens every race. So um, most of the time, the mechanics, if they did a good job, you don't you don't see you don't see or hear about them because they did a good job and the bike was good and no one bothered to you know to see you on television doing something strange like that. And um, so yeah, it, it's it's good to have an opportunity to kind of put it all to practice in the race once in a while to actually feel like all this time you spent learning how these bikes work kind of <laughs> down to the nitty gritty like that. Uh, how do you can exploit those little tricks you've learned over the years to maybe save, save a race result? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well done with the break, uh, break repair. I think that was, uh, 
definitely uh, got people talking. There's uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of talk that. about that. And now uh, we've got um, our membership like Velo Club with cycling tips and that's sort of got a, a private chat group. There's a lot of talk about uh, oh, I should check uh, that out. <laughs> about your uh, your impossible uh, fix there. Everyone was speculating yeah. that it had to be bled. And, it, um, yeah, they, they, they kind of speculated on television too during the broadcast. And of course, you only, you only saw me holding it there. <laughs> If if you saw how I was holding it with it pointed up the way that it was, you might have known that it probably had something inside it. But uh, I think the announcers assumed it was just an empty one because they said that would never work and it could be done <laughs> and this and that. And then like two seconds later, they showed her riding away. And so, um, so that was nice. Yeah, that was nice. And um, yeah, for sure. Although it wasn't, it's was probably maybe her worst World Cup result ever. She was still forty first. Um, keeping in mind that she had a rear flat in the next lap after the brake change. So. Um, things are not going well there for the first couple of laps of that race, but then she salvaged it and rode on and passed, I think like over 50 people and managed to get like 41st, which with the fractured um, wrist with a, we found out later. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Fractured. Uh, it's like the, the large bone, um, this one, is it the ulna? I can't remember. I think it's the ulna. Anyway, yeah, it's like a bone, like in the middle of that bone, there's like a small kind of hairline. It's not broken through or anything, but it's like, yeah. Like in, the, hard, in the forearm hard area exactly yeah exactly okay yeah and i guess it's worth mentioning that it's um i guess normally if you if you're having such a bad day you most people just dnf but for kate she's re- really racing for points here she's racing for the overall so yeah, it's point it's it's and you know it's that and it's um just like pride and honoring the team and the sponsors and everybody who's kind of put in the work you know to not give up when there was an opportunity to continue. That's kind of how she rolls normally. I think she's only ever DNFs like, I I think only two pro races. One was with a concussion at Leah Gang at World Championships last year, and she said there was another one, and I don't remember when it was. Mm. To be honest with you, yeah, right. Um, and it might have been like when she was still a junior or a U twenty three, and I wasn't even at that race somehow. Um, but this was a, that one was the only time I've ever seen her DNF. I thought she might because she did. She didn't look like she looked like she was in pain uh, in Nova Mesto. This one, bless her heart, uh, she didn't look like she felt super great when um, when I saw her. And then when she stopped again, actually to get the brake swapped out, she it was kind of moaning a lot, and I could see you know she was bleeding from a number of spots. So you know I've crashed on my bike. I know it doesn't usually. Uh, feel too good to keep pedaling and the conditions were not motivating or exciting to ride in either so um, a lot of things working against her so yeah we were pretty proud to see her kind of rally and get her morale back on track and actually keep pushing and she actually had like top 10 fastest lap times for the last three or four laps of the race after she got all the all the shit out of the way so she was still riding quite well of course when you're like sitting 100 and something to work back to 41st is quite an accomplishment, but it doesn't really look so good on paper. But it was quite a ride that she put in eventually once the bike kind of <laughs> was done <laughs> having all of its various problems. Well, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it was definitely a good race to watch. So, uh, yeah, I guess with from the mechanical side of things, um, I guess prevention is always the best key right uh, what do you what are you doing to prevent these mechanicals like i know we've spoken before about some sometimes you'll you'll make tire choices based on the course that perhaps might be heavier or slower but perhaps a bit more um resistance to flatting uh and that type of stuff is how far does that go into your process and your planning with the racing um 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of it, you know, and it's, it's even the bike choice, too, we have that discussion, um, you know, it's the same with the tires, yeah, what would be fastest in theory, or what would be fastest for one lap, you know, it could be the lightest tires, it could be the hardtail, but if you actually think about how you feel, or how you ride six laps into a race, and you're totally smoked, and like how, how clean are you going to be able to ride this on a hardtail, would it, would it maybe be faster and safer, and prevent a flat where you might hit something hard on a hardtail and, you know, puncture. And then how much time does that cost you versus what the hardtail would save you? These are kind of theoretical uh, conversations, but worth thinking about, you know. Um, same with, like, running a dropper post, which has become, I would say, more and more like the new normal in cross countries, especially as they've gotten lighter. And with the wireless ones we have, they're so easy to swap between uh, a straight post, regular you know, normal C post and the dropper to, if you want to just try back and forth, which one, you know, which one should I choose? Um, there's a lot of ways that a dropper post is faster that are hard to quantify, you know, like you can't just put it on a scale and say, well, it's heavier, so it's slower. But, you know, if you've ridden with a dropper post, like even on pavement sections, you can drop it and be arrow. You can lower it around flat turns because it lowers your center of gravity and you can turn better on the bike a little bit maneuvering over technical stuff it's not just on a steep descent they're all it's always faster and so you'll almost never see kate race without one now even though it's like several hundred gram weight penalty um so you know we're, we're kind of thinking about what is fastest not necessarily what is lightest what will last the minimum hour and a half uh necessary uh and then you know on my side i take as much time as i need to take to make sure the bike has gone through and is running as fast as it can be with all of those sort of concessions made against having quirky failures. So I'll, you know, lock, lock tight every bolt and do everything just to make sure we don't have any random oddball things come loose or, you know, we're running very lightweight stuff. So you don't have a lot of torque on those bolts. So it's important if they're vibrating and rattling around that they have some treatment to keep them from just backing out. So, you know, it's a thorough, thorough preparation, you know, now it's a preparation is worth a pound of cure or whatever, whatever system of measurement kilograms and, you know, grams and milliliters and stuff. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of my approach and has always been. And I, I've never really, like there are some, you know, there are some guys who can do really fast changes in the tech zone. And I can do pretty fast changes, but that's not really my approach. I'd rather not do anything, you know. I'd rather just stand and clap and say, go, good job. Um, <clears throat> and do the, do the heavy lifting the days prior. And uh, for me, if I can... I'm fortunate on my team with one rider to support, you know, I can spend that time and really just go through it thoroughly. And I've done all the work. I know what was done. I know how the bolts and every preparation on the bike was done and when it was done. And so I know when the sealant is low, I know how much was in it. I can put a little bit less in it to save a little bit of weight if the course doesn't necessarily have a lot of opportunity for punctures. Um, so I have that flexibility and the trust from Kate and the trust from the team to do things the way I see Um I see fit and the way I see deem it appropriate. And um, for the most part, we have, you know, barring pretty wild, unexpected crashes, we have a pretty good track record. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess, like, to, to get more specific on that, you, you spoke before about the drivetrain and how you're wearing the drivetrain, make sure it's, I guess, running more efficient for one, and then also that you've, you've proven it in the days before. So, you know, there's no, the chain is a known quantity and, and all that. 
What about tires? Like, what is your specific setup with tires these days? Are you are you running sort of more puncture resistant tires? I know you guys are sponsored by Maxxis. Yep, we are a Maxxis team. Um, we're a Maxxis team. We actually don't even use their lightest. We don't even order. We don't even like place an order for their lightest option uh, casing. We use the the EXO casing, which is like a slightly reinforced one, um, and that that was. I fully support that, but that was a decision that existed prior to me and Kate joining the team um, because the boys, uh, Nino and um, Yannick and Andre and Lars also, our other two riders, uh, kind of are of the same mind where it's just not worth all the, I mean, to go to a World Cup, it's a huge investment. It's a lot of time and effort from a lot of people and to kind of roll the dice on tires, especially the way courses are these days where they're quite technical with a lot of pretty wild features on them. You kind of... I mean, for 60 grams a tire, it's not really worth it, you know? And we do have, as a Maxxis sponsored team, some kind of race only or team only tires with the 170 TPI casing. So it's a little bit more of a supple casing. So the ride quality is somewhat offset, you know, with a nice soft casing with a little reinforcement, it feels more or less like what a kind of consumer 120 TPI casing tire would feel like uh, in the lightest offering so you know we have we have some nice stuff as a pro team that that makes it easier to make decisions like that for us but um i think generally speaking at least within our own team that's kind of the approach is you know we need to make sure we actually get through the race because if we do we have a lot of talent on this team that could deliver a good result so don't let something that could be avoided be the reason that um you know we had to pack it in early this weekend so um you know, with Kate, she's always a sure bet, basically, at any race she lines up at. And, you know, I mean, his legacy speaks for itself. He's never, I mean, I think his worst race result ever was like eighth place in Leah Gang. Mm. You know, maybe not ever, but uh, Leah Gang in last recent, year at Worlds. In quite so, recent time, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. most people in eighth place at Worlds would be an awesome, awesome, like, lifetime achievement. And for him, it was like, well, what happened? And I feel so bad <laughs> for him because he's <laughs> set his own bar so high that uh, anything short of perfection is like a letdown for people. But um, yeah. But that's that's the kind of team it is. So yeah, we have a lot at stake, and uh, we want to make sure that we, you know, that our guys are in there at the end. And uh, something dumb that we could have not done uh, as mechanics or choices we made as a team, you know, shouldn't be the reason that we didn't win. Yeah, for sure. What what's in the tires? Um, I guess speaking for for Kate, are you running inserts these days or or not? No, not right now. Uh, is my answer. We, we are running now two point four inch wide. Uh, which is like the wide trail kind of line of tires that Maxxis has come out with in the last couple of seasons. Um, that was something that we, uh, our team kind of helped to pioneer and engineer with Maxxis. Um, it's it's kind of like a combination both with a wide rim. We run 30 millimeter internal width rims. Um, we switched to Synchros rims, which is kind of like a Scott owned brand this year with some pretty fancy one piece carbon wheels called the Silverton SL, which are like super dope wheels. Um, really excited about that. Um, they're quite stiff though. And so having the 2.4 tire and the ability to run kind of lower pressure safely, uh, not only reduces rolling resistance, but also kind of improves the feeling of those very lightweight, but quite stiff wheels. Um, you know, so for Kate that, uh, is a perfect combination of things. It's a little bit safer. There's a little more volume to take an impact before you run the risk of, you know, a hard impact from the tire and rim. Um, and, you know, and it's a good lightweight package that is also super grippy with a lot of traction and control. And so 
Um, that's our kind of go-to setup. We usually run Aspen tires, Maxxis Aspen tires. Um, we have a few other options. And then in these mud races, we have the same wheel set with a 26 millimeter internal width rim. So it's a little bit narrower, a little bit lighter. And then we'll run a 2.25 width tire. We have some prototype uh, at the moment, mud tires from Maxxis that we've been racing quite a bit this year for better or worse. Um, but that's, so we run this narrower tire with a narrower rim, which gives you better clearance for mud in the frame. It's a little bit lighter if it gets packed up with mud. And, um, you know, generally speaking, you don't need a wide, large volume tire because it tends to sort of float on top of mud rather than kind of cut down into it and get some, hopefully, hopefully some traction somewhere down in there. The old cycle cross theory. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and it works pretty well. We haven't been running those with an insert in it. Um, we did rear flat it at Nova Mesto with that setup. And I kind of wonder, you know, retrospectively, should I have put one in there? We, you know, we had a dozen races uh, on 2.25 without an insert where it was all just fine. So, you know, you can always second guess that and question that afterwards. You know, I always say to help myself sleep at night that flat tires are uh, the rider's fault. Usually, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, as long as you didn't set them up wrong. Well, it had, or something it had like that, yeah, it had air in it when you, when you, yeah, you know, when yeah. you last touched it. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, usually you know it's like from smacking something pretty hard or, or taking a weird line where you cut the sidewall against the rock, but it's not like a mechanical failure where an oversight or a product actually like did perform as it was engineered to. So um, that's where I draw my distinctions on what I'm willing to accept responsibility for. Uh, but so maybe we'll go back to an insert on muddy days because you know muddy days is also you kind of are taking weird lines half the time because you're just sliding all over the place. So. Um, you know, we always take each race into consideration when we make plans for the next one. So that's definitely something that I, I will think about for the next one. If we are setting up the mud tires, maybe I'll toss an insert in there. Because again, the ones we use are the Pepe's tire noodles, which weigh like 70 grams for the for the version that we would use. And so um, it's not adding a ton, yeah. you know, for the prevention that it may may provide. So for sure. um, that, that being said, last time we raced Nova Mesto, well, 2019, we raced Nova Mesto. We did have two two fives on. It did have a rear tire insert in, and she still rear flatted, mm. but she still won the race. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's all these different formulas to <laughs> kind of go back and forth when making these decisions, and uh, never yeah. simple. So it's never simple, and it never always works exactly how you drew it up either. So, for the most part, we've got a pretty solid foundation that we always start from, and usually it's a effective one. Yeah. What about uh, tire sealant? Yeah. What's what's in there? Yeah, so we use this product. It's called Magic Milk, uh, Magic Milk High Fiber. It's a European brand that we don't even get in the United States, but it's a team sponsor, um, and it actually works quite well. And uh, we we didn't have a tire sponsor, or rather a, a sealant sponsor, until last year, which is twenty twenty. Uh, in twenty nineteen, we we were using this product, but we were also testing other ones, and kind of found that this one was the one that seemed to be working the best most of the time um and you know that's a lot of testing done at places like the cape epic which is just a flat tire festival for most teams throughout the week it's like thorns in the tire like hundreds a day you put you pull them out or just new tires every day it's the official um, race of dynaplug exactly yeah. yeah totally and um you know if you have good sealant you can run through all those thorns and never even lose pressure and I remember at the end of those stages, pulling them out, you know, literally like 40 thorns out of each tire and just spin the tire once and they'd seal right back up. And so those would maybe become the tech zone wheels for the next day, 
you know, assuming overnight that they held, uh, and there's no no concern about them, but they would help. They would hold, and um, and they would have like fresh tires on race wheels for the next day, and then kind of back and forth like that throughout the week. But yeah, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's a good it, it, sealant is one of those things. It's hard to test. Also, you know, it's like well, no cut is the same. No riding conditions are exactly the same. So like, how do you say this was better than that? But once you take a large enough sample, I guess eventually you kind of can say, well, we raced the sealant for these races and had only this one or two flat, you know, flats that we, as a team. And so, um, anyway, yeah, so that we kind of worked on a bit of ad hoc testing throughout the season. I know the team was also doing some of that before, and I have my own experience with other brands of sealant before joining Scott. And so, um, that's where we've arrived now, but, um, yeah, it's a good product and they kind of work with us and we ask for more, you know, you know, more more stuff in there, more particles in there, they'll do it and they'll kind of make different formulas of it for us and tweak it to suit our preferences. So that's nice and it works quite well. Yeah, cool. Sounds like a good sponsor. Yeah. Uh you you mentioned Cape Epic there. I'm I'm keen to just touch on uh I guess some of the repairs um and scenarios that you might train riders for. I've seen in the past, um I know you've worked with am I a riding thing you worked with Christoph Salzer? Uh, yeah, so I, I never worked uh, while he was racing okay. there, but he was um, like a performance director on specialized factory racing in his in his pseudo retirement, which of course he was still racing. And I would support him at races like Leadville, which he would do, um, and some other like epic ride series races, like marathon distance stuff in the United States. Some really fun uh, events that um, you know we would have some of our top riders do. Uh, as well and so he he's a super thoughtful and when it comes to like bike setup and uh, equipment choices and stuff like development of products um, one of the most thoughtful and engaged riders I've ever met and probably ever will meet he's like it's like a a passion for him no doubt and uh, it's really cool definitely opened my eyes and exposed me to products and methods that maybe never even crossed my path because in the United States we don't even have them and so, you know, he was always looking for an edge here or there with whatever piece of equipment, um, you know, he was working with. And so he was always uh, very involved in that those conversations, even as not a rider for us at the Cape Epic. And he was oftentimes there physically as well, um, participating with his charity, which is Songo, uh, which is a charity down there that he helps to run. And um, so he was actually, I think, riding, but like with the charity kind of as like a... Um, not as like a competitor in the pro field, but okay. yep. to sort of elevate and bring his ability kind of, yeah. to his, uh, yeah. his, his cause. Um, but in any case, uh, yeah, I was working with him, uh, but the riders that we supported when we, when we raced there was 2017, uh, Yaroslav Kulhavi and Howard Grotz were the men's team, uh, which, and they, they won the race. And then we had Annika Langbad and, uh, Kate were the, our women and they won the race as well. And, um, so I was there with my fellow mechanic, uh, Holger Friesen, Jumanji is his uh, go-to name. Um, and he was like, um, for the factory racing program at Specialized, would sort of like be the European-based mechanic. And I was the American-based mechanic. We also had Leo Davison on the team at the time, um, Todd Wells for a couple of years there too. So we had a, you know, two good squads from both sides of uh, the pond. And so I kind of took care of Howard and Kate, um, which was interesting, you know, we each took care of one male and one female rider rather than one guy do the men's team and one guy do the women's team, you know. 
Um, but they were my riders who I worked with all the time, the American ones. And so I took care of Howard and uh, Kate there. And Jumanji took care of Yaroslav and Annika. And, uh, you know, for us too, as a team, that was important that we were kind of on the same program throughout the week as well to make sure that, you know, everybody's, you know, kind of got the same supplies and same training for those trail side repairs. And we would actually have sessions in the weeks leading up to it. Um, when we were there, actually, it was, uh, we have like a large office in Stellenbosch, South Africa, uh, when we were specialized. And we were down there for quite a long time that month because we had a World Cup season opener was also there. Uh, and so we had some time, some downtime. We would schedule actual sessions where we would like kind of time and run through like cutting a bent link out of a chain and replacing a chain or just shortening a chain and then being aware that your chain is short and you may not be able to hit the largest cog, for example, in the rear cassette. And you need to be mindful of what happens to your bike when it's kind of in salvage mode rather than in, you know, perfect condition like it was when you started the stage. And of course, how to plug tires, how to put an inner tube in quickly and do all the mounting and breaking the bead off from where it's kind of locked into the rim. Uh, on a tubeless tire, which some riders who don't do a lot of their own work may not have experienced. And um, so, yeah, we kind of went through everything, made sure they had all the tools, knew what tools they did have. Um, We would make them a list of what was in, if you know the specialized bikes well, they have a little SWAT box, which is like a plastic uh, storage compartment on the down tube that kind of mounts under the water, like at the base of the water bottle cage on the down tube of the frame. Um, So you could put a lot of stuff in that, which is Super convenient. It's actually a great innovation in the product that I actually really liked a lot, as simple as it is. Um, it's a great idea rather than having it under the saddle because it lowers the center of gravity on the bike a lot. And um, if you run dropper posts, sometimes a big saddlebag can interfere with the rear tire if you have a small frame like Kate. Um, and so anyway, uh, inside that you can fit a lot of stuff. And we have like tire boots in there, spare valves, because there was an experience once where somebody snapped the alloy valve stem after fixing a flat, I think it was Yaroslav in a previous race. Um, and I guess the cold from the CO2 made the aluminum quite brittle. And when he kind of pulled the pump head off, he broke it. And okay. Then, uh, it wasn't, he wasn't putting through a thousand watts through a hand pump. <laughs> no, okay. although I'm sure he could, that guy could definitely. But, uh, you know, just a lot of it is based on experiences that were had in the past. You know, like I said, in the tech zone or in a race like that, you experience things that are not conventional and repairs that sort of require some freestyling uh, and a little bit of improvisation that maybe is not just this simple, straightforward, this is how you replace a link in the chain. But yeah, your chain is now twisted in like a five link segment of chain. You have to cut the whole thing out and somehow ride this bike for the rest of the day, or at least till you find the next tech zone um, where there's a new chain waiting for you. By the way, the Cape Epic, you don't have tech zones. You only have tech boxes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not physically in there to wait and do the work for them. Yeah. But they have to just arrive where Jumanji and I, in this case, had planned uh, for hopefully everything, you know, that they could possibly experience. And there would maybe be two or three along each stage um, where they could stop and service their own equipment using the supplies that we put there. Um, But, you know, they still have to get there. And so if they broke a chain, they have to figure it out and then not damage the bike trying to shift into a gear that they can't anymore and then rip the derailleur off the bike or who knows what. Um, so yeah, things like how the derailleur hanger mounts to the frame, you know, something that a rider may not have ever even thought about. But if you know on like a through axle mountain bike, there's sometimes many pieces to form one single 
rear derailleur hanger, and it has to be put in such a way with the axle out and then holds it in there, and you have to kind of find a bolt from the bottom and do all these little things, which, if you've never replaced one, could be quite a puzzle on the trail side in the middle of a race that you're winning and now losing. Um, and so, you know, we tried to, as mechanics, think about all those scenarios. Of course, as mechanics, we don't know everything that they go through, but um, having raced a bit uh, here and there throughout my life, I have some idea. I think that's something that is useful as a mechanic for me now to kind of know what not only riders go through and what their head is doing, but also kind of the way bikes get treated um, in less than ideal conditions or circumstances or after a crash or, you know, kind of imagining what a bike goes through in a crash. And that's sort of where I base a lot of my planning and theory from is just, you know, what I've seen out here after all these years in the bike shop and everything else that I've kind of been witnessing for the last couple of decades. Sometimes it, sometimes it's useful information. <laughs> <laughs> that so the the Cape Epic is uh, I mean pretty notorious as a as a bike killer. Uh, I once did an article that just basically was just a gallery of failures. Um, oh man, yeah, and you know there was a lot of failures that I didn't include in that gallery. But uh, I can imagine uh, that's that event. I guess is actually quite similar to where a lot of uh, gravel events are kind of ended up in terms of what yes. the bike is required to do i guess yes so like a day at the cape epic is very similar to uh, a day in a you know a longer endurance based gravel event um you, you touched on before a bit about what's what the riders had as spares what i guess fast forwards today what would you want someone like kate if she was doing a, a distance you know a race of that distance six plus hours on the bike what would you want her to be carrying well, so it's a, it's a tough, you, it's always a tough conversation because they don't want to carry anything more than they have to carry because they think about it from that perspective. Um, but what I usually, so, you know, we do some marathon distance stuff on the cross country side of racing. We haven't done any, well, she actually has done a few like kind of unsupported gravel events, more just for fun, for training. Um, but we'll usually have at least one spare tubeless valve and make sure it's long enough. And also make sure the valve stem on your spare tube is long enough to actually fit through your rim. Um, pro tip. And uh, <laughs> I've seen riders show up with a valve stem too short that <laughs> didn't actually protrude far enough to get a pump head on. So, uh, yep, that's a, that's a good one to just make extra, extra sure of. But we have a tube, valve. Uh, we usually would have like a, maybe like a business card side size patch cut from an old sidewall of a tire to use as a boot on the inside of a tire, should you cut a sidewall, for example, um, where you know you, putting a tube in it won't fix it because it will just burst through the sidewall um, and, and probably flat again. Uh, so that, we have some things like a Dyna plug, uh, for example, Kate usually will carry two Dyna plugs um, fully loaded, plus a little, you know, you know those little plastic uh, kind of compartments that they include with some extras uh, as well. So hopefully she doesn't need to use more than four, but I usually have four spares plus the four loaded in the tool. Um, two large CO2s, 25 gram CO2s, two heads, because I've seen riders have CO2 heads fail and then they're out there and they have all the shit and then the pump head itself actually fails and then um, they can't really use it. And so... Uh, I send a second one and they're so small and lightweight that 
it's not like a huge penalty, but it's uh, certainly better than having a really frustrating moment in a long walk back with a fully, <laughs> like a totally functional system with just that little part failing and uh, not being able to inflate your tire. So um, usually not a pump, especially on a mountain bike, because the volume is so large that it's like, it's like almost impractical to even try to use one. Um, but if you have two CO2s of that volume, pretty large volume CO2, then that's usually enough to get home in any mountain bike event that we've ever done. So we have that. We have usually one master link for the chain taped around like the front housing or brake hose. Uh, somewhere is super accessible, not even in the saddlebag. Um, something that small sometimes can be hard to find. It gets like lost in the saddlebag. So we have it right there. Uh, and then, of course, multi-tool that has a chain function, a chain braking function in it. Um, I haven't actually gotten one for her yet because we haven't done a race uh, since 2019 where we've needed to carry all this stuff, where she's needed to carry all this stuff, but a, mass, a little tiny Masterlink uh, tool like the Wolf Tooth one that's like kind of functions both as a tire lever and a Masterlink plier. That's a really clever little tool that is small and light and handy. Um, so something like that. Kind of a basic function multi-tool as long as it includes a chain um, element. And now that we have, speaking of gravel bikes, uh, the SRAM axis road chain, which I know you and I have had a lot of fun with the tools that have had to be modified or, or re-engineered to accept the different roller diameter of that chain. Um, so just make sure that all the tools you have actually work on your bike. Make sure that they're long enough to reach into all the little uh, recesses where the bolts you know, might not be so easily accessed and your little multi-tool might not have a long enough bit in it to actually reach in there. Um, so it's good to actually test drive all this stuff once before you just show up at the race with it packed away and then discover, you know, when you needed it the most that it wasn't actually compatible with your bike or your, your setup. And that's sort of what I was hinting at with the valve stem length on inner tubes, particularly mountain inner tubes as mountain wheels, carbon ones in particular have gotten kind of deeper. Um, <clears throat> traditional valve stem lengths of about 30 to 32 millimeters. That's sort of traditionally the kind of standard length uh, are oftentimes too short. So um, that's easily probably uh, a mistake that could occur on a gravel bike too with deeper aero carbon rims. Um, make sure you have the right length and you don't show up with like a 48 millimeter valve on you know 45 millimeter rims and you can't actually inflate it. Uh, that would be, that's, it's a very good, good uh, tip to remember um, and something I've seen done a time or two that where people kind of stranded themselves just by not thinking it all the way through. So um, take a good look at your own setup. Make sure you have the tools, for example, your cockpit, all your controls, seat post binder bolt, axles, through axles on your, on your wheels, pedals, stuff. Make sure you have a multi-tool that has all those, all those tools is, is kind of the, the way to easily select a multi-tool or pass one over. Uh, and look for a different one because, you know, it's nice to have a nice, tiny, compact, small, discrete multi-tool, but if it can't actually perform all the things you need it to, you're really only saving a, you know, couple dozen grams over like a fully replete, you know, multi-tool. And so um, when you're by yourself supporting yourself, it's better to have it, <laughs> have it all and not need it than to need some stuff that you forgot about or chose not to bring. So, um, yeah, I mean, gravel bikes, I think on like a lot of these bigger events, we have Unbound in the United States this weekend, 30 Kanza, those those big ones where you're out there in the middle of nowhere. Sometimes the conditions are a little bit 
more than what the bikes are comfortable in. So you're kind of in the same with cross country, you know, we're riding these bikes that are supposed to be super lightweight and really efficient, but sometimes the courses are maybe just a little bit gnarlier than, you know, they would make that the perfect bike choice for just that one section on the course, but you have to sort of adapt and make the best choice for everything. And so also the, I would maybe suggest, uh, if you can know the course plan accordingly, if you can't and you're in one of those situations, take care of the bike. Maybe don't try to rip through some gnarly, like washed out rocky dirt road on your gravel bike because it's, I mean, you, you might get away with it. Um, and the guy who wins probably will get away with it. Uh, but if you don't, then, you know, you could go from being in the front to the back in a matter of just a few minutes and, or maybe stuck out there, you know, for <laughs> even longer than you want to be. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just know what the limits are or know what the comfortable safe limits are of the bike know where you're kind of when you're entering into one of those zones where the equipment is kind of being put to the test more than you know and and, and ride accordingly and take care of it and be gentle because um, sometimes those few seconds you might lose in those moments are, are you know almost always they'll almost always be worth you know taking those extra precautions rather than uh, risking everything and finding yourself on the losing end of that, uh, gamble. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think those yeah, are it's more fun to be. <laughs> yeah. I would say more fun to be on the bike than uh, standing next to the bike. <laughs> I think that's a pretty, pretty wise words to, to wrap up on actually. I think that's, uh, I think that's, um, yeah, you know, take the, take the seconds, prepare and enjoy the yeah, ride the, rather than the ounce, regretting. Ounce of prevention is worth a, worth a pound of cure. That's like my, sort of uh, my benchmark standard for kind of how I approach all of it. And um, yeah, I think getting through it is, is, is usually, no matter how the result looked, more enjoyable just as an experience than having to deal with all that pressure and stress and hectic stuff uh, some, somewhere along the way. So do yourself a favor and make sure your shit is sorted. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, Brad, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to sit down and talk through uh, all things mechanical prevention and fixings and uh, when shit goes wrong. And yes. yeah, so it's yeah, fortunately uh, it doesn't too much. But um, thanks for thanks for acknowledging and uh, taking an interest and happy to talk anytime. That's a wrap on this week's Deep Dive Nerd Alert podcast. If you're on Instagram, then be sure to give Brad Copeland a follow. He's certainly entertaining. This episode was brought to you by Velo Club. It's our Velo Club members that allow us to bring you content such as the Nerd Alert podcast. Velo Club goes a long way toward funding our independent tech content, but it's also a lot more than that. The private Slack group is a personal highlight, and it's a place where members discuss the world of cycling, get answers to questions in minutes, and most importantly, can share photos of their dogs. We'll be back next week with the regular crew and discussion about the latest happenings in the world of cycling tech. See you then.